This is It Takes You, Amy Eiler, J.J. Gordon. Pick your programming. Last week, we asked our listeners to pick their programming, and they picked space. You did a good job, listeners. We appreciate it. I think Dr. Juan Cabanella would agree with that. Dr. Juan Cabanella on with us now. He is the professor of physics and astronomy at Minnesota State University, Moorhead. You would agree that they did a good job picking their own programming, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. No, I'm always willing to talk about space, so I I enjoy this. (laughs) Um, we also had them sort of pick their questions, what they wanted to talk about, because as Dr. Cabanella said, when I called him, he said, space is a big place. (laughs) So one of the first questions in was the difference between a meteor and an asteroid. All right. So, um, Meteor is what most people call a shooting star. It's something coming through the atmosphere and essentially burning up because it hits so fast that it has a lot of friction with the atmosphere and burns up. Most meteors are actually, well, space in in the solar system is, the the debris that's in the solar system is mostly little chips of rock off of asteroids or cometary dust. And so most of the stuff that hits us is actually cometary dust. So when you see a flash of light up there, a shooting star, most of the time it's a tiny piece of dust that is maybe the consistency of cigarette ash smashing into the atmosphere at 25 miles per second. Uh, the bigger stuff, the flashier stuff, when it lights up the whole sky, those are usually small asteroids or little chips off of asteroids. Um, if people want to get a sense for how big these things can get, a few years ago we had one of them come in over Russia, uh, the one that exploded in the air and <laughs> devastated a small town called Chelyabinsk. They had a, a lot of broken windows. That massive explosion came off of one rock about the size of a of a small home. Whoa. That's massive. Yeah. Okay, so how one of the questions in our text club was about they'd like to know how big of an asteroid can be deflected with current materials and technology. And and is this happening is like the deflection of these things happening a lot more than than we know about? Well, um, right now, nothing is being deflected intentionally, except that Earth's gravity can deflect an asteroid and pull it toward us. Um, but, you know, like humans going out there and deflecting stuff, we've only done it once intentionally. Uh, this past fall, we hit a small asteroid uh, with a spacecraft called DART. Mm-hmm. Uh, DART. DART had the mass of a, you know, like a Honda Accord, <laughs> is the way I like to think <laughs> of it. But it was a Honda Accord moving at, you know, 5 to 10 miles per second. And so it smashed into this asteroid that was, um, if I recall correctly, roughly the size of a football stadium. And it did manage to deflect it, and actually deflected it better than we thought. Um, That said, we shouldn't get too confident. Right now, we really had the, you know, that mission took years to plan. You need a lot of lead time, um, and actually... More lead time is better. So this person asked about how big of an asteroid. I can deflect a really big asteroid if you give me 100 years to do it. <laughs> because then I right. only have to do a little bit of work at a time, you know, pulling on the asteroid. So the, the best way we think, you, uh, hitting these things with nukes, you know, sending Bruce Willis up and having to hit it with a nuke, we don't <laughs> think that that will actually work. Um, but nukes do a don't work well on asteroids because they have, like, if you think of a beach, asteroids have a consistency that's a lot like a beach, we think, that is kind of made up of a lot of grains. And if you set off a firecracker on a beach, you'll make, like, a small dent, but you won't really, like, 
destroy the beach. You'll just make a small dent in it. Most of the energy goes into pushing around the sand. Um, these guys don't respond to nukes. So what's better is slow and steady. So maybe you park a big, massive rocket next to them and just let gravity pull the asteroid toward you slowly. And if you can deflect it slowly with 10 years of lead time or 15 years of lead time, you can deflect it enough over that time that it'll miss us. So, okay, so doctor, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. How far out are we seeing asteroids? So are we seeing things where we can project, well, in 150 years, this thing will you know, breeze by our planet, uh, or are we looking at thousands of years? Uh, I hate to depress you. It's more like 10. Oh, boy. Whoa. <laughs> Most of these guys right now, we can predict their orbits with some accuracy out about a century, uh, the ones that we can see. And, in fact, um, you know, the, the heads-up that we've gotten in the past, when they discovered this asteroid Apophis, which is actually going to swing in underneath our um, – geosynchronous satellite belt uh, in 2026, if I remember correctly. That sucker they found in the early 2000s. And they basically only knew it was going to miss us about 20 years in advance. Well, that's fun. Uh, that's that's a, terrifying. Well, I mean, <laughs> to be honest, we've been hit by rocks. We will be hit by rocks in the future. That's just the nature of things. Um, you just, to, to some extent, you know, we, we're going to try to, you know, find these things and stop them. But I I think, that, you know, the really big stuff, the stuff that could wipe out civilization, that stuff we've got a good handle on. The stuff that could do, like, damage to a town, that's what scares me. Right. Because those are much smaller and much harder to track down. Is our known universe in a black hole? You said black holes is one of the things people want to talk about the most. And, yep. and yeah, we definitely got questions about black holes. So let's talk about them. Is our known universe in a black hole? Okay, you'll be happy to know you do not live in a black hole. Um, a lot of people think, and there's actually some physics to this, um, the physics that describes black holes is actually the identical branch of physics that describes the universe as, a, as one whole, as one big object. Um, it's called general relativity. And in both of those, gravity plays the central role. So, you know, gravity, whole, in essence, gravity is what slows down the expansion of the universe or affects it. And gravity is also what pulls you down into a black hole. But we know we don't live in a black hole because if we were in a black hole, we'd be getting pulled inexorably toward like some sort of singularity. We would be shooting across the universe. And we are not, to our knowledge, doing that. So we're pretty certain we're not living in a black hole we're pretty certain well i mean sure. because are people in black holes do they know they're in black holes but i i, I get it you have some science yeah. to back it up <laughs> I, well i like to warn my students that you know we what we don't ever prove anything in science we have evidence supporting something but you can't ever be 100 mm -hmm. percent absolutely certain and so when i said when i was couching my language a little bit it's mostly there uh, if if the inside of black holes behaves the way we think it does, we're not in we're a black not in hole. One. <laughs> okay. But we don't know what the we've never been inside a black hole that we know of <laughs> to measure, you know, to be certain. Okay, I'm I'm a little curious about this too. What is the obsession with black holes? I mean, is it just because there's so much that we don't know about it? Do you think that's a curiosity? Is that why people talk about it so often? Well, I I think they're they're just interesting objects. The idea of this, you know, giant Hoover vacuum cleaner in space that can suck down anything and destroy it. 
Um, I, I think that that just is just mentally kind of impressive. You know, they've been in several movies and science fiction movies. You see these big swirling things that suck people in. Um, the funny thing is black holes even fascinate after you learn about them a bit. Uh, I, I, in my class, in my intro astronomy class, we go over black holes. And one of the things I talk about is the fact that black holes, literally, it's what happens when gravity wins. Um, gravity just keeps winning, and the material just gets sucked down, because gravity wants to crush things down. And it, gravity will eventually, if not stopped, crush it down until it has a size of zero. And that so is crazy hole, to think about. Yeah, a black hole, I like to tell people, is literally what happens when God divides by zero. <laughs> it's oh. a mathematical fact every time, right? <laughs> yep. So this question that popped up in our text club, I would like to know if it is theoretically possible to fold space in order to shorten distances in space travel. Oh, man. Um, okay, so let me explain a little bit about folding space. So we actually know that that physics that I talked about, general relativity that explains black holes in the universe, the way it explains the behavior of gravity is it essentially says that any mass that you have bends this thing called space-time. Space-time is what we all live in. It's the combination of the three dimensions of space and the dimension of time. And mass bends that. Now, you may think, oh, great, so how the heck do scientists think that this is happening? How can we have bending space-time? We actually measure it. Um, and the GPS in your phone relies on it. So the GPS satellites that orbit the Earth would not be able to get your position accurate to within, like, you know, 10 feet or 15 feet. They'd be only accurate to a couple hundred feet unless they actually took into account the bending of space-time caused by the Earth's mass and made corrections for it. So mass bends space-time, but the way it bends space-time is it always actually makes distances longer. So actually going into orbit from the surface of the Earth you actually have to go a little bit farther than you might expect. Now, it's not; it doesn't affect our rocket flights. We're talking very, very tiny extra distances. Earth is not that much mass. So mass makes distances essentially longer. The problem with this approach of folding space-time to shorten distances is you would need negative mass. You would need something that is repulsive gravitationally and I don't think we have found, to my knowledge, we have not found anything yet that has negative mass. Yeah, so I mean, it, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I've never heard of anything with negative mass. And uh... <laughs> yeah, I. So that's the, it, it. Would be great if we could. I would love to be able to shorten the distance because you know, if you want to travel three light years right now, it, it's going to take with the fastest rockets we can even conceive of being built in the next century would take, you know, 50 to 100 years to travel to the nearest star. If you could shorten that distance and instead of having to go three light years, you have to go, you know, five city blocks, that would be awesome. <laughs> that would be awesome. I mean, also a little bit terrifying and well, strange. But... And and I think this takes like a bigger understanding of space and time, which I don't know that most of us have. <laughs> I don't, at least when you're like talking about this and like, I... I have no, when we start to talk about space, it makes me realize I don't, I don't understand space or time or anything that's happening around me or where I am, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I, 
I like to tell my students space is mostly empty, so you really don't have to understand that much of it. You just only have to understand the interesting parts. True. (laughs) Doctor, what's the furthest we've sent a man-made satellite out and been able to retrieve some kind of data back? The farthest thing that humans have sent out right now, I forget which one of them it is. I think it's Voyager 2. It's either one or two, but it's, it's the, oh, no, pardon me. No, it's the Pioneer spacecraft. Um, they went out a little earlier than that. They are out, I want to say, something like five or five and a half times farther out than Pluto right now. Wow. Okay. So, And we do get data back from them still. I think the Pioneers have shut down. So the current ones that are still sending data back are the Voyager spacecraft. They actually measured the crossover into interstellar space where the sun's influence ended and where interstellar space, like the particles from space, started dominating instead of the particles from the sun. Okay, that's wild to me because I thought we were still keeping it in the neighborhood. You know, I thought we were (laughs) still within our planetary structures. That's the neighborhood, I suppose. That is the neighborhood. It took 35, 40 years to get out that far. At that speed, it's going to take... 60 to 70,000 years to get to the nearest star. (laughs) Wow. That is crazy. So that's our neighborhood. Uh, That is our neighborhood. Do we, are we trying to get back to the moon? Yep. Um, A lot of people heard about this Artemis mission that they launched a few weeks ago. The Artemis, or not weeks, months, but the Artemis 1 mission. It sent a new design spacecraft called Artemis around the moon, and they actually was unmanned, and they just did a bunch of flybys of the moon. That's for testing the spacecraft. The next version of that, Artemis II, will actually have a crew on board. And the goal is to put that and launch it around the moon. This is similar to the first few Apollo missions where they sent the crews around the moon and then brought them back. They didn't land. Artemis III, if things go on schedule, which with NASA is a big if, uh, if things go on schedule, Artemis three is supposed to land on the moon in 2025, and it will land in the southern parts of the moon, the southern near the South Pole, and it will have a crew. And so it'll be the first time humans have been on the moon in about 50 years. Wow. That's, I mean, 2025, that's not far away. Nope, that's the hope. And I, I mean, I would love it. I, I think that uh, getting people back on the moon is a first step to, to going back out there and, I mean, I know NASA's goal is eventually to go to Mars. Um, it's a big jump from the moon to Mars. But we have to be able to at least be able to survive in a lunar environment and to be able to make that jump. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that space exploration is an international uh, cooperation, not nightmare, but we certainly are relying on, on a lot of other countries. It's not just NASA who's working on on these types of explorations, correct? Yeah, I mean, if you think about how it all started with Apollo, it was about beating the Soviets. But now there's sort of much more of an attitude of cooperation. Scientists have always cooperated, even back in the time of Apollo, but today there's much more of an attitude of cooperation. If the Europeans can build part of the spacecraft and the United States can focus on building the command module, and heck, we even let other you know private companies build the rocket itself, there's sort of this attitude that it's better to sort of farm out the work and get sort of everybody's best contributing to it. So, I mean, I, I think it is much more international than it used to be. I will point out that by international agreement, the moon is not to be claimed by any one nation. Yeah. 
that's exactly why we put our flag up there, right? It was just to say, like, hey, we were here first, but everyone's welcome. Well, yeah, we the, we put our flag there because we could. Right. Uh, but, but we did not. You'll notice that when, when the Apollo astronauts put the flag on the moon, they were not saying we claim this for the United States. Right. They were very clear about not doing that. Dr. Juan Cabanella, professor of physics and astronomy at Minnesota State University, Moorhead. Thank you so much for our first space talk. We appreciate your time. No problem. Take care. Bye-bye.